it's, uh, it's good to learn new things. And this week I learned a new word. It was the word thickly. I know fickle and fickleness, but not thickly. And uh, you can look it up. And I inserted it into my sermon title, and we ended up with thickly faith. And I hope it'll be fairly self-explanatory as we go through our passage. Our meditation today will be based on Judges 6, verses 33 to 40. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we often take for granted the opportunity that we have to be together. And over the past year and a half, we, we haven't always been able to do that, at least in the same way. And so we're thankful today that we can come together with our Belmoral family. We have reason to believe that we are not alone, that you are present with us. We pray that you would make your presence felt. Um, there are times we understand when we sort of travel blind, but it is so nice when we are able to experience the felt presence of God. And we ask that you would make it so today. Um, we come from different places and spaces. We all carry uh, some anxieties with us. And so we look to you today as our good God and maker. And we ask that you would continue to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Help us to encourage one another. And we thank you that we can be together. Uh, as we look into your word today, we ask that the one who inspired that word would take that word and deliver it to a good place in our lives, uh, right where it's needed. Um, we know that you can do that. And we ask that you would. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. There are some stories in the Bible that seem amazing even after reading them for the umpteenth time. Take the Abraham-Isaac story in Genesis 22. After waiting for what must have seemed forever, Abraham and Sarah finally had a son. Abraham was 100. Sarah was 90. You think maybe they were the talk of the town? Well, I'm sure they were. Fast forward 25 years. That's how old Isaac was, according to Josephus. When God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son, I like the way that the Genesis passage sets up the story. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abram, he replied, here I am. I like Abraham's reaction to the call of God. I'm here, Lord. What are we doing today? And God said, today we're doing something difficult. Today will be a day of sacrifice. And so it was. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there. As a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. I want you to notice what comes next. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. 
early the next morning, you got to be kidding. No dilly-dallying, no foot-dragging, just an attitude of, let's get her done. This morning we want to look at an episode from the life of one of Israel's so-called judges, a man by the name of Gideon. His story is found in Judges 6, 7, and 8. Fred and Walter have already introduced us to some of the opening episodes. Today I want to take us into the next one, the one about the fleece. Did you hear the one about the fleece? Well, you probably did. Not the police, but the fleece. One commentator described Gideon as an ambiguous man. My wife would say that he was a mixed bag, a little of this, a little of that. When I think about what I've learned, what we have learned about him so far, the word that comes to mind is curious fella. Gideon was a curious fella, hard to pin down. Well, what have we learned about him so far? When we first met Gideon, he seemed rather timid. He didn't want to draw attention to himself. He's trying to avoid detection. That's why he was down in the wine press, verse 11. Secondly, we learned that Gideon had misread the nation's troubles. Now, it's easy to misread people. How often have you been in a conversation with your spouse or a neighbor and you thought you knew what they were talking about and it wasn't quite so? This past week, Diane and I put together a piece of Ikea furniture and we discovered how easy it is to misread instructions. At one point, we thought, "Uh uh-uh, this doesn't look right. And so we had to back up and kind of start that section over again. It's easy to misread, and Gideon had misread the nation's troubles. He thought it was because the Lord had abandoned them that they were suffering at the hands of the Midianites, when in fact, according to an unnamed prophet, Israel had abandoned God. No, those aren't the same thing, are they? God had abandoned Israel, Israel had abandoned God. He got the message mixed up somehow. Kind of interesting. Sometimes leaders do that. They misread things. Third, Gideon seemed reluctant to accept his commission. God wanted Gideon to be Israel's deliverer. So when the angel of the Lord said, Gideon, you to man, Gideon wasn't quite so sure. Before he'd commit, he wanted him to perform a sign to prove that he really spoke for God. And so a sign was given. Do you remember? Gideon's offering was zapped right out of existence. Eh, Pretty amazing. Fourthly, fourth thing that we learn about Gideon. So now with a sign under his belt, Gideon felt emboldened, and he struck a blow for God against Baal. He vandalized some of Midian's the Midianites' religious symbols. He tore down one of their altars, and in its place, he built one for Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's good. That's good. Good, Gideon. When the Midianites learned about Gideon's religious vandalism, it riled them up. You ever feel riled up when you see some of the things that get done around Red Deer, some of the paintings and stuff that happens? Vandalism. Riled them up. They were furious. You may recall a number of years ago when Muslims in France were offended by cartoons that visually depicted Muhammad. 
They reacted with violence, claiming the depiction of Muhammad was blasphemous. This may be how the Midianites viewed Gideon's actions, which is where we pick up the story in Judges 6, 33 to 40. Let me read that from the NIV. Hope you have your Bible. Some of you bring print Bibles. That's great. And some of you bring digital Bibles. That's great, too, just so long as you bring it. So Judges 6, beginning at verse 33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went to meet them. These are some of the various tribes. Gideon said to God, verse 36, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. You heard that before? Maybe in Sunday school? I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, nations are preparing for war. Verses 33 to 35. The Midianites and friends prepared a gang up on Israel. They will punish Israel for what Gideon did. Remember, his religious vandalism. There's only one problem, though. Israel now has an emboldened deliverer. They didn't have a leader like that before. He's been commissioned by the angel of the Lord, and he has already flexed his muscles against Baal worship. He sounds a trumpet calling the Israeli forces to battle. It looks like we might have a fight on our hands. Two, just a second. Maybe we don't have a fight on our hands. It looks like Gideon is hitting the pause button. Before he will lead Israel into battle, he said he needed more assurance. Verses 35 to 40. Well, how much assurance does he need? How much assurance should be enough? I can think of at least two assurances that he's already been given. One assurance was that an angel of the Lord had appeared to Gideon with a divine message. And his message was something like, I'm here to help you defeat the Midianites. Gideon, you're my appointed deliverer. You will pulverize your enemies. You have my word. Two, the second assurance. There was the sign. Gideon had asked God to perform for him some tangible demonstration that God was really in these events. 
It's nice to get a sign sometimes, isn't it? Can you get too many signs? Wouldn't it be nice to get a sign prompting us to do God's will? I know of all sorts of things that God wants me to do. There's the great commandment. There's the great commission. There's the Sermon on the Mount and all sorts of other things. Wouldn't it be nice if, you know, you're supposed to talk to somebody and maybe a prophet shows up, like happened earlier in chapter 6. A prophet shows up just to coach you a little bit. A couple of days ago, I was working in my front yard and there was a lady walking down the street with a dog and I had seen her before, but I had never spoken to her before. No prophet showed up and said, you know what, Terry? It could be one of your neighbors. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. But I went ahead anyways, and I spoke to her and learned some interesting things. She was a a widow who lived one street over, and the dog that she was walking that day was a rescue dog. And so she told me a little bit about that story. There are other things I would have liked to have talked to her about, but we'll do that another time. We've broken the ice now. But sadly, there was no prophet that showed up to coach me at that time. There is no angel of the Lord delivering me messages from God. Did you know that I actually have to write my sermons myself? Can you believe it? Boy, some weeks it takes longer than others. Some days, some weeks, the light hasn't showed up yet and it's getting close to the end of the week and you get a little bit nervous. No angel of the Lord. And sadly, there aren't many spectacular signs. I don't know if that's my fault. I don't know if maybe, you know, I need to get my prescription checked or something. Although, I'm just thinking now, on our holidays... My wife did fall off a ladder, and she got up afterwards with minimal bruising, which was great. Does that count? Not sure. Well, what does Gideon do? Gideon does two things in our passage. First, he acknowledged that God had spoken to him. In fact, God has spoken to him twice already. Twice he had said that he was going to save Israel using Gideon. Notice the phrases in verses 36 and 37. As you have promised. In other words, you said you would do this, God. And then also it says, as you said. So it makes me wonder, how often does God need to speak to him? Is Gideon's problem really a lack of communication from the Lord? Or is his request for further um, assurance justified? So that's the first thing that he did, was he acknowledged that God had already spoken to him loud and clear. He wants to hear from God again. The next thing that he did was he apologized for his request. He's asking for another sign. And he's not feeling that confident about it. He says, do not be angry with me. I have no idea what the tone of his voice may have been. I wish I could have been there to hear it. Do not be angry with me. It's like, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this. I don't know if I get to do this, but I want another sign. Actually, he doesn't want another sign. He wants another two signs. And so he asks, make it, he says, 
so that in the morning the fleece he'd left out overnight will be soaking with water and the ground dry, which is normally what happens, right? And then secondly, make it so that in the morning, this is the next day, the day after, make it so that in the morning the fleece will be bone dry and the ground soaked. Implied is that if you do this for me just once more, I will really, really believe you, God, and do what you're asking me to do. Hmm, interesting. What do we make of this guy, Gideon? What can we learn from him? The first thing I think is that Gideon is a lot like Israel. Israel as a nation was quite thickly. Gideon seems to be bit by the same bug. He's certainly capable of obedience. He took down the symbols for Baal worship as he'd been asked, and that was good. But then he stalled and said he couldn't take the next step. Is that really true? He couldn't or he wouldn't? He couldn't take the next step. He couldn't lead Israel into battle against the Midianites without more signs. He wanted more of the spectacular. Is that a sign of spiritual maturity? God, I need more of the spectacular. In over four decades of pastoral ministry, I have observed that some Christians seem to need a regular dose of the spectacular in order to keep going. Multiple conferences and events every year, and if they don't get them, their enthusiasm for Christian things, say the church and ministry, begins to taper off. In fact, often they begin complaining about the inadequacy of their local church and the leaders of their local church and, of course, their pastor. And they slide into a funk. Didn't get to enough conferences this year. Didn't get jacked up all the times that I wanted to. If you can't thrive without the spectacle, your Christian journey is going to be long and lean. Because in my experience... The spectacular comes not all that often, and I don't think I'm that unusual. My advice to people who can identify with the individuals I've just described is, better learn how to feed yourself. I love conferences. I love summer courses at Regent College. They are like mountaintop experiences in my life. But you can't stay on the mountaintop. You have to come down to the valley because that's where most of the Christian life is lived. That's why I try to limit myself to one event a year. And then I look to you and some of the stuff that is happening around here to build me up and to encourage me and to help me keep going. Another thing I think that we learn from the Gideon story, while signs may be sexy, I doubt they will sustain you. You will never believe what is... Go <laughs> That's actually a quotation. You will never believe what God is doing down the road at church so-and-so. It's amazing. Or did you hear about Helen's healing? Fantastic! Don't get me wrong, I pray for healing all the time. I just don't see it all that often. It's wonderful, though, when it does. 
Or John just had a vision last night about the return of Jesus. Let's invite him to come and speak sometime soon. After Jesus' resurrection, there were those who believed the witness of the women who saw the risen Lord. But not everyone. You remember that? Some of the apostles didn't believe the testimony of the women. The women who came back and said, you're never going to believe it. Boy, were they ever right. You're never going to believe it. The tomb is empty. We've been told that Jesus is alive. And the apostles just sort of dismissed them. And they said, you know those silly women? Nah, I don't believe it. Women, easily excitable and so high strung. And the Lord had to deal with them a little bit later on. Thomas, doubting Thomas, said that without the experience of seeing Jesus and touching him, he wouldn't believe. He refused to believe unless Jesus showed up in person. Well, guess what? Jesus accommodated not his faith, but his unbelief by appearing to him. Know what he said? This is what Jesus told Thomas, doubting Thomas. He said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who got the blessing? Who got the blessing? We are wowed by people with grand stories of grand experiences, while Jesus was wowed by people who have faith based on the testimony of faithful people. I wish I had more stories to tell you, more spectacular events that have happened in my life or through my ministry. Just don't seem to be there as much as we'd like. I wish I could be a fly on the wall eavesdropping on the first conversation between Gideon and Thomas in the next life. I wonder what they had to say to each other. Do we require signs and wonders before we yield our whole heart to God? I'm not opposed to signs and wonders in principle. Thank God when they come and they're real, they're legitimate. But when they don't come, don't fret. God is still there doing his work and his way in our world, and it's grand. Third thing that we learn from the Gideon story, if we don't want to be the embodiment of fickly Israel, then who? How about some of the first disciples, especially when they first met Jesus? I don't know if any of you have seen the made-for-TV special, The Chosen. It's kind of a new series about the life of Jesus. It's very different from anything we've seen before. Some of you will like it. Some of you might not like it. But I'd encourage you to at least give it a watch. It's interesting. They bring this out so beautifully. These first disciples, they're examples of swift obedience For example, in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus called Simon and Andrew, and he said, come follow me, Matthew records, at once they left their nets and followed him. I mean, he, he interrupted their work. Anybody who knows anything about working with people is you don't go to their place of employment, you don't bother them at work, but he went to where they were working, and he said, follow me. At once they left their nets and followed him. And a little while later, James and his brother John. They're in a boat with their father, and Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. No request for signs. How do we know that you're real? How do we know that you're legit? 
somehow God enabled them, gave them the grace that they needed to recognize that he was someone very, very unique, and they followed him. Talk about prompt obedience to a call. Would that I would always respond with such promptness to the will of God. The real hero of the fleece episode isn't Gideon, notwithstanding some of our great Sunday school lessons. The real hero is God. Why do I say that? A couple of reasons. One, it reveals the length to which God is willing to go to rescue his people. Even though their servitude to the Midianites was not their own fault, just as soon as they cried, I'm sorry, was their own fault, just as soon as they cried to God for help, the wheels of redemption and rescue began to turn. It's as if the Lord had said, just give me a reason to save you, even a teensy-weensy one, and I will. And he did. Are you in trouble these days? Is it your fault? Don't assume that you're beyond God's reach. You're not. The arm of the Lord is not too short. Another thing that we learn about God in this story is it reveals the mercy of God towards his own. Though fickly, hesitating, and reluctant, God is so for us. I don't know how often I meet people and I think to myself, the main thing that they need in their life is to know that one other person is for them. When I was working with the Baptists, um, there was a guy who was called the district minister. He was sort of like a pastor to pastors. And whenever he would sign his emails to me, at the end he would say, for you. For you. I needed that. God puts up with a lot. God showed Gideon, or rather, if Gideon were but to show God just a shred of cooperation, he would take advantage of it. Flawed you are, you say, not a problem. God specializes in taking people like us who regularly fall short and then making something of us and using us. Have you considered the possibility that it's true, that God is for us, warts and all? He'd like to draft you. What would you say to that? And then finally, it reveals God as one who involves others in what he is doing. This same friend of mine, his name was Cal. His philosophy was, why do it alone if I can do it with someone else? And so sometimes he would just call me up even at the, at, at the last minute and say, hey, what are you doing this evening? I've got to go do such and such. How would you like to come along? And if I did, I usually learned a lot. Not content to go it alone. He puts us to use. He privileges us to share in his cause, to bless us, to bless us that we might bless others. I don't know about you, but these days I'm feeling really blessed. Why? Because God wants me to bless others, so he blesses me. Ministry, another word for serving. You, you know this, I'm sure, but I'll remind you. Ministry isn't just for chapel staff or leaders. It's for every follower of Jesus. What's yours? 
What's your service? What's your ministry? What part are you playing at Balmoral? Come fall, we're gonna need some help. We've got some, we got some lifting to do. We, we've, we've gotta you know, get back up after we've been knocked down by pandemic. And uh, we've, we've, gotta, we've gotta pull together and uh, we've got some ministries that we need to start up again and uh, a number of areas where we will need help. If everyone takes a turn, the work that God has called us to will all get done. God will not ask Balmoral to do more than we are capable of doing with his help and with input from his people. I'm sure of that. Gideon really struggled with God's call, partly because it would take him out of his comfort zone. But as we'll see, it would also lead to the deliverance of God's people. And speaking of deliverance, that's exactly why Jesus Christ came into this world. Deliverance. God offers us deliverance, not only from the power of sin, but also from the penalty of sin, as well as a generous share in what is to come. What is to come? Oh, the Bible and the writers of Scripture, I guess, sometimes just their vocabularies fail them. They don't know what to, how to describe it. What is to come? What is the future that the people of God have to look forward to? The Bible just sums it up with the expression, new heavens and new earth. Wow, that'll be grand. Are you in? <laughs>